These Things Take Time by The Smiths from the album Hatful of Hollow. This is David Eastall and this is The C86 Show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life as... I'll be playing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, always trying to discover the best in indie pop from the golden decade and beyond. And it is beyond, because this week's special guest is going to be Colin Moulding from XTC, who is also in a new musical adventure titled TC and I. I'll be bringing you that interview in four or five easy-to-digest little segments alongside the usual exciting playlist. But to kick off the show, I think we should play something from XTC. This is Sensors Working Overtime.
get to me far and wide Up in the hills where we walked Although the wind may blow cruelly Scatter me my one and only Scatter me where we lived Under your favourite rose Although the blossom is falling Scatter me on one hazy morning Oh, scatter me once Scatter me twice Oh, scatter me fondly Like wedding bell rice Then live on by the gong Sing a song Just floating Maybe by chance I'll fly and land beneath your feet titled Scatter Me from TC and I. And um, you might say, who are TC and I, David? Good point, good question. Well, that features Colin Moulden and on drums Terry Chambers, who were part of XTC, and that's their new musical adventure. And this week's special guest is Colin Moulden, because I caught up with him a few months ago to find out more about life, love, poetry, death, and also bands. Yes, indeed. And before that... Obviously, we had a track from XTC. Censors working overtime, their big hit from their 1982 album, I do believe, English Settlement, which happened to be their fifth album, which I thought was pretty amazing. Most bands don't last that long. Anyway, this is David Eastall, the C86 Show, 
bringing the finest in indie pop and all that malarkey. Or a bit later on, I'll tell you how you can contact me if you so wish. But anyway, this week's special guest, as I mentioned, Colin Moulding. So I'll be bringing that interview very soon. But before we hear anything from Colin, I think we should play another track from XTC. This is, yes, you've guessed it, you little Darren Bryans out there, aren't you? This is Making Plans for Nightfall. <laughs> Obviously, the track titled Making Plans for Nigel that came out in 1979 and was on their album Drums and Wires, produced by the one and only Steve Lily White, who um, produced 
a huge amount of fantastic songs throughout his career and was once married to Kirsty McCall. I know, fascinating facts. No, they're not at all, actually. So don't worry, you don't need to retain that. I won't test you at the end of the show. Anyway, this is David Eastall, The C86 Show. Um, always bringing you the finest in indie pop. Anyway, I caught up with Colin Moulding um, a couple of months ago to find out more about his latest musical adventure, which is TC and I, a collaboration with one-time drummer with XTC. Um, and this is the first part of the interview where we talk about the collaboration and how it came together. So, Colin, tell us the story. Yes, yes. Well, uh, Terry came back into the country, you see. Uh, your listeners may remember that um, Terry left XTC back in 1982 after we made English Settlement. And um, we hadn't really seen much of him since then, really. Right. And then... Um, he came back into the country and says he was coming, said he was coming back for good and gave me a call and did we want to go out together? I said, sure. I went out to the pub and got a bit steaming, you know. And um, I was kind of, had something in the boiler at the time, you know, yes. uh, this EP. And I thought, well, shall I ask the impossible? Did he fancy playing on it, you know, because I was just thinking about getting other drummers involved and uh he said yeah i thought you'd never ask <laughs> so, uh, so that was it really um he was coming back into the country for good and it, i thought well this is a great opportunity so uh i said well why don't we become an item then you know oh nice so, yes uh, it's got to be done the pc and i thing you know yeah well and i mean obviously you must have i mean when he left back in the early 80s, did you have, um, was there sort of, did you expect it or did you see it coming? Well, I had no idea that it, things were going wrong out there. I think he was unhappy in his marriage and whatnot and uh, had some personal problems and um, I think he decided to leave it all there, you know. Yes. Um, and uh, come back to sweet old Blighty again. Yeah. Um, uh, so, um I didn't delve too much into it. I just felt that there was a bit of pain there, and I, I think he was happy to come back, you know. Yes. I mean, did you, I mean, had you been in touch with him when, you know, throughout those decades? Yes, on a, well, a, the, the occasional phone call, you know. Yeah. And um, we went out once or twice, I think it was in the 80s and once again in the 90s, but uh, yeah, occasionally, you know. Yeah. But um, I didn't really question his life there, you know. No. I mean, because <coughs> cause it's quite interesting, because I've done, you know, a lot of these interviews, and and one thing I hadn't appreciated quite so much was the this kind of um, the, the narrative and the longevity of most bands. I mean, you know, we're talking about the 80s indie scene, but I think this probably applies to quite a few bands of kind of getting together, you know, creating a sound that's going to appeal to more than just a few f friends and family and play at the local village hall disco or, you know, art centre. And and so once that kind of, you know, making some sort of noise that makes people think, oh, actually, you could, you know, people might want to hear this who aren't related to the band. You know, there's a sort of like do the single in the old days, do a John Peel show or session, then do the album, do the tour. And then, you know, what I found is that most people... When they're trying to do that second album, if anybody ever does America, it just seems like everything starts to go terribly wrong. And then in about five years, everybody just wants to exit and leave it behind. So so obviously, <laughs> <laughs> I know there's such a pattern, isn't it? So it's sort of XTC's kind of um, life as well. How did that sort of pattern develop with you, you know, from those early years? Well, as everyone knows, is that uh, you have all the time in the world to write the first album because it's just basically your live set that you've worked up over many years uh, taken into the studio. But of course, when the record company turns around to you and say, OK, fellas, let's have the second album, it's kind of, my God, what are we going to do? You know, <laughs> have to start writing a bit quick. So you have to write an album in three months, you know. Yes. And um, that's very difficult. And uh, bands tend to get on that treadmill of touring and perhaps touring too much and not concentrating on the records. But there are other forces at work here, you know, management and record company. Um, so, yeah, it takes on a bit of a pattern, I think. And then, of course, in XTC's case, uh, Andy, Andy Partridge got ill through it all. 
and we had to come off the road then. So um, we just concentrated on making records then. Yes. Um, so yeah, it's been slightly different in our case because you know we've had illness and stuff to contend with. You know. Yeah, because obviously, I mean, it was kind of interesting because I've always put indie pop down from the year of sort of eighty three to eighty seven. You know, the kind of glorious years. Basically, that's also the lifespan of the Smiths, who I thought were quite influential. And obviously, you'd sort of come along much before that you know you were much more part of that punk period as well really and, and post-punk really so your influence was quite huge to a lot of those bands who sort of came along on that kind of glorious treadmill of the the sort of c86 kind of world i guess well a lot of those bands um we'd we'd had our career in england really it finished in about 82 83 because the hits were no longer coming and um so we began to get more popular in America, but obviously realized that there was a scene that was taking off in England with bands like the Smiths and uh, later the Stone Roses and people like that, you know. But um, that happens with bands, you know. You can um, be very popular in one territory and then they seem to forsake you, you know, and then <laughs> you come up in another territory, you know, it's it's... It's rather odd. The fickle world that is rock and roll. That is my first part of the interview with Colin Maldin from TCNI and also obviously XTC. I've still got quite a few more of those bits to come. Anyway, this is David Easel, the C86 show. This is going to be another track by XTC. And uh, yes, complicated game. Just a jump, a stick, a man, a man, shut up. 
Exhausting stuff. Yes, there you go. XTC and Complicated Game again from their 1979 album Drums and Wires. David Eastall, C86 Show. This is going to be the second part of my interview with Colin Maldin, where we talk about the creative process and uh, keeping it going and all that exciting malarkey. Colin, how do you do it? Give us the answer. Well, I, I know what you're driving at here. <clears throat> I think when you do start making records, it's all very exciting. But then you get on this treadmill and it becomes not so exciting and then you realize why it didn't become uh, exciting and uh, you try and make amends later on and of course with terry and i working on the tc and i stuff it's um we're our own paymasters we don't have record company backing as such yes. you know so in a way we're we're off the treadmill and we can do what the hell we like you know um so that's that's it's been fun because we were able to record at our own pace. We have a recording set up at my house and we're able to kind of, you know, um, smell the flowers, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously it must, you know, I mean, it's kind of interesting because I can't remember who it was I interviewed. Who? Oh, I think it was uh, Lawrence from Felt who couldn't understand why songwriters didn't get better with age like most people in professions you know would get better whereas the world of rock and pop often it's like no you're really good when you're not particularly great you write those kind of iconic songs in your teens and early 20s and then in later life whatever you write about doesn't quite have that edge which is kind of the opposite to sort of carpenters or plumbers or mechanics really who should get better with age so so with with sort of the material that you wrote for this ep did you find um, I suppose it was kind of the, the subject matter, because obviously, you know, we, with the past of age and, and life experiences, we all deal with certain things which aren't so rock and roll like um, health and death and, and sort of ups and downs, but much more on an emotional level, you know, as in not teen ups and downs where everyone gets angsty if they can't get a phone signal, but actually, you know, like going to doctors, having scans and all that kind of that stuff. So obviously what you're writing about is going to reflect where you're at at the moment. Well, I, you know, with songwriting, I think it's uh, a lot of... Most songwriters have a golden period, I think, and then it really goes off the boil. And sometimes, you know, they don't write as good songs as they used to, and then they end up touring just to make money and stuff. I think... Um, because we haven't had the, the kind of pressure, if you like, of record companies breathing down our neck, we're able to only put stuff out that we've really got faith in, you know. Yeah. And um, even more so with TCNI, is that I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have done the EP if I thought it was just a money earner, you know. Yeah. I, I knew we knew I had to come up with something that was going to capture the public's imagination, you know. So. I didn't worry, and I don't worry about making an album. Maybe I'll never make another album, you know. I just don't I don't care about it. The main thing is is that you make something of worth, you know. Yeah. And um, I think you're right. I think a lot of people, a lot of songwriters do fizzle out. But, I mean, when you've been writing songs for all that many years, you just run out of tricks, you know. There's only so many interesting chord changes that you can explore, you know. It's, um, you have to recharge the batteries quite a bit later on you know in order to get something of worth i think yeah and obviously there was um a track that you've probably been asked quite a lot about uh, on this ep which is the one scatter me which obviously they, this kind of deals with slightly more sort of morbid sort of subject matter not necessarily morbid but just kind of the inevitable really isn't it yeah yeah well it's a uh, <coughs> it's something you don't really want to talk about but uh i thought it kind of came to me because I thought, what's the subject that most people don't want to talk about? And that is death. But how can you talk about the subject in a really unusual way that's uplifting? You know, that's the quest. 
And uh, that, that's why it works, I think, because it, it is unusual from that perspective. Um, I go walking on the downs quite a bit around the downs around Swindon, the Berkshire Downs, that area between Wantage and Swindon. And you you come across these little shrines, you know, yes. uh, with a little cross and um, a bouquet of flowers and, and maybe a photograph as well. Of, and it's obvious that somebody's ashes have been sprinkled there, you know. And um, I, I store these things up, you know. I think, well, maybe there's something there. Um, do you remember that old song from McGuinness Flint, When I'm Dead and Gone? Um, it's from 1970. I think it made number one in the UK. And uh, the sentiment was, you know, when I'm dead and gone, I want to leave some happy woman living on. And I, I thought that sentiment has kind of stayed with me for quite a long time. And I thought, that's a great sentiment. If I could kind of get that in a in a song and bring that feeling out, I, I think that would be good, you know. That's, that strict, strikes a chord with some, with a lot of people. Yes. Um, but it's a place that we've all got to go to at some stage. And <clears throat> if something pops into my head, I... I think the subconscious is a wonderful thing, and um, I don't question it if it happens, and I store it up, you know. I think, well, the conscious is no good to me. It's the subconscious that I like to explore, and if it throw thing, throws things forward at you, I tend to catch them and put them down in my notebook, you know. Yeah. So, um, so that, that's how it came about, really. A number of angles were there, really. I know. We know how to get a party started. Let's just talk about life and death and what happens later. Anyway, that was my second interview, part of the interview with Colin Moulding from obviously TCNI and XTC. And um, yes, I did have to go and look at that track. He mentioned McGuinness Flint and the track called When I'm Dead and Gone. Worth checking out if you get a chance. And um, yes, always one to um, get everyone just dancing around the kitchen floor. Look, we need another track and then more interview. But this is going to be XTC and the track called Dear God.
Dear God, and the track, well, that's the name of the track, Dear God, from the album Sky Larkin that came out in 1986, a fine year for music, produced by the one and only Todd Rundgren, and that was their ninth studio album. Boy, did they used to bring out albums. That's XTC, and this is David Eastall, the AC86 show. If you want to contact me, we always love your messages, well, some of them anyway, you can via Facebook or Twitter, just go to at C86 show, it's always nice as long as it's kind of groovy and positive. Otherwise, don't bother. It's not that exciting. Um, Yes, so this is going to be my third-party interview with Colin, where we, yes, I ask him if he's thinking of uh, touring um, TC and I in the uh, next couple of months. And this is what Colin said. Colin, what did you say? It's possible that we may do some shows, yeah. Obviously not on the scale that we used to as in the XTC days, but, um, you know, we're not going to beat ourselves up over it. but yes, it, we could do some shows, I think. Yeah. And uh, that's a, that's that's very likely, I think. Yeah. Uh, when maybe maybe in the autumn or something, that would be uh, yes. But obviously, TC and I don't have a huge catalogue. <laughs> um, I dare say I could. I dare say we could something up from the XTC roster and mix it all up. You know. Yes, that's quite <clears throat> amazing. Because the other thing. You know, if it's not uh, the difficulty of, you know, being a creative artist and producing something is quite hard. But there's also what I've noticed is that a lot of bands also have amazing problems with management and the legality and admin. And XTC, you you kind of, you really sort of hit that one on the head, didn't you? Well, we did have a manager in the early days. I think you've got to when you're on the road that much um, to take care of things. But... um... Unfortunately, I think he took care of things in the wrong way, and uh, so we there was threats of court action and all the rest of it. Anyway, we came to an agreement eventually um, of parting of the ways, and um, once bitten, twice shy, as they say. So we never really went into uh, having a manager again. Um, we had a manager in the late eighties called Tarquin Gotch. He was a very nice fella. But because we didn't tour, he really said, you know, you're a lovely bunch of lads, but I can't make any money if you don't tour. So uh, that was the end of that, really. But, uh, yeah, he was a nice fella. And uh, perhaps if Tarkin would have been around in the early days, it would have been altogether different. But uh, but there you have it. You live and learn. Yes, I think I think everyone I spoke to have, have like slightly gone. Oh God, yes. That there was the music, there was the good times, and then there was the tricky management and the. Um, I suppose there's also the other thing is, that, you know, do you did you manage to sort of keep a certain ownership of your music? Because I notice with some people they say, oh yes, I may may made sure that I didn't sign anything away, and other artists have said, oh no, we signed everything and we don't own the music anymore. So it's kind of locked up in somebody's kind of vault in some record label or company. Did you manage to sort of keep your sort of publishing rights? Well, if you signed a a recording contract in the 1970s, I don't think really anybody, maybe Elton John did or something, but I don't think anybody really kept hold of their music, you know. It was all part and parcel of, you know, that was was the game, you, you had to pull your pull your chair up to the table and pick up the cards, and you know, and generally they were stacked against you, really, in favour of the record company. Um, you were just on a royalty, yes. as the Beatles were when they started, you know, and um, and you haggled until your royalty got a bit better, until you got so brassed off that you left the label, <laughs> and, uh, 
And then you sort of think, hang on a minute, this indie world that I've got into is even worse than being on the label. Let's go back onto the label then. <laughs> uh, so, yes, towards the end, we we owned a piece of our music, yes. yes. But in the early days, no. We, generally, the, the years with Virgin, we didn't... Uh, we were paid a royalty, as most bands were, you know. Yes. And what would you say to your 18-year-old self, you know, if you had an opportunity to just have a quick whisper in their ear as they were about to go on stage or sort of go back into the recording studio? I think we tried too hard somehow. I think, you know, you just, you just got to simmer down a bit. I think you're you're just so glad to be not in your day job and just making music and being a professional musician. You're just so glad that you're... You'll go along with anything, you know. And um, we just wanted to play and record, you know. And uh, I would have done it for free, you know. Yes. But, um, it's, yes, I mean, we made mistakes. Of course, we did financially. But um, it was still a great profession to be in, you know. And um, you see now, there aren't the... There aren't the... Um, is not the capability to actually make a great income by being a moderately successful band, you know. Uh, you could back then, I think, with record sales, but what with the internet and piracy and streaming and all the rest of it, a new way has to be found, and for, for a lot of bands that has to be touring, you know, yes. because that's the only way you can make money. Unless you're the likes of the Rolling Stones or whatever. Well, there you go, they tour anyway, but... Uh, I'm talking about re making records, you know. Um, so it gets more difficult, but yeah. But having said that, it, back then it was very, um, it was very expensive to record, you know. Back yes. then, you'd get a studio in London and you wouldn't get much change out of a thousand pounds a day, you know. Um, and it's pretty much that kind of fee now. So the passage of time in a way the, the cost of recording has come down you know uh, but it was very very expensive uh, to record and just getting your foot in the door then was was unbelievably hard you know in fact uh, in the 70s the record business was a bit of a closed shop really run by public school boys and stuff and you know it was Genesis and, and you know these sort of bands that really nobody could kind of crack it, you know. Mm. It wasn't until punk came along that the, the doors really opened up, you know. And uh, and then, of course, that confused the hell out of record company people, and they <laughs> they signed everybody. So everybody got signed, and, and then there was the kind of a, a rooting out of the wheat from the chaff, you know. Um, but, yeah, it was, they were great days because there was this grassroots movement, you know. Yes. It, do-it-yourself kind of stuff, you know, and uh, that was great for getting your foot in the door, you know. Because in a way, with the, with the band, I mean, you, I mean, it was kind of various scenes in that early those early years when you were sort of just forming, you know, there'd been the glam, there was sort of the beginning of heavy metal, I suppose, and as you mentioned, there was the prog rock period of GS and Genesis and people like Barclay James Harvest and uh, Wishbone Ash, so... Yes, a few years later, punk obviously came along and sort of smacked everything around a bit. So did you sort of, did you feel a bit like um, a kind of a band without a scene to be particularly part of? <clears throat> well, I think record companies thought we were punk. We certainly played <laughs> played a lot of the music very fast in those days on the first couple of records. Hmm. Um, but we, were we part of the scene? I suppose we felt part of a scene that was happening then, yeah. Yes. Because we were, we were being signed around the time of the Stranglers and the Clash and people like this, you know. We felt part of the scene, but I think we knew equally as well that we weren't quite like them, you know. We weren't political in any way. We were kind of apart from them, but also part of the scene as well. In fact, we wanted to be part of the scene in order to so we could be signed up, you know. But um, we knew that we weren't like them in much of a way you know yes it was just that your early years or obviously before kind of 75 76 when punk was kind of really beginning to sort of roll steamroll along so i just wondered you know in those early years 
sort of where you were sort of fitting into the musical landscape? Well, I th- we must have fitted in in some shape or form to be signed up, you know. Yeah. But um, well, I just think perhaps the A&R people thought we were kind of different in some way, you know. Um, I don't know what they thought, you know. <laughs> I'm just glad they thought the way they did, you know. Yes. Uh, uh, but... Um, were we part of the scene in a way, but we were kind of deliciously apart as well. Possibly know? the best place to be. Anyway, that was the third part of my interview with Colin Moulding from XTC. We're going to have one more track, and then the last part of the interview. This is When She Appeared. Then she appeared by XTC. This is going to be the last part of my interview with Colin Maldin, where we talk about his relationship, uh, or what his relationship is like, with the other members of the band. I know, I've been wanting to ask him that all interview. A little bit frosty. Um, we've had our ups and downs over the last 10 years since the demise of the band. Uh, but there's been no official statement about the demise of the band, really. I suppose it petered out around 2006. 
Um, we've had a few ups and downs, mainly about the reissues and stuff and difference of, of opinion. And we do communicate by email, but I haven't seen him in a good while. It's true, yeah. Yes. So, um, and a uh, similar thing with Dave, really. Yes. I mean, that's you... bands for you. <laughs> that's life and bands. I know. Well, it is, <laughs> yeah. it is quite interesting that how, how difficult it is. All you know. I mean, with, with the last time you were with each other, did you sort of feel like as you were parting, yes, we're not going to, this is going to be it now. This is, we probably won't see each other again. I detected that there was something brewing, yes. But it was, it was a bit of a long goodbye, I think. Yeah. Um, but that's the English for you. They just can't talk, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you get older and set in your ways and, you know, your propensity for change is limited, I think. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the same story for bands world over, I think. You know, there's just an estrangement. Uh, maybe there's the, the big walkout, but it didn't happen for us. It was a kind of... I, I just wish that the other guys would have told me how they felt and then we could have all saved a lot of time, you know. Yes. Um, uh, but that's what bands do. There's a general can't-talk thing and it's kind of, you become more and more estranged and then it just fizzles out. So it, it just sort of petered out, you know. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting because as a fan, I'm, I'm sort of, I mean, I suppose one of my bands I was obsessed with were the Smiths. And the one thing one never, I think as a fan want is a you know a band to reform but i suppose one would like to think that the members of the band could get on and and occasionally had a nice time so and that's you know i know it sounds like a bit of a strange thing to want but i suppose it's cuz cuz the music meant so much and i suppose with xtc i'm sure that you've you know your fans I'm sure some people will say something like, oh, we should reform, which I think is like, a bit like ABBA. You know, it's quite nice they might make an, a new single, but you really don't want them reforming particularly, you know, trying to play... No, because <coughs> I think you want to remember them how they were, you know. Yes. And I think um, it can never be like it was. It can never be, you know, because time moves on and catches us all out, you know. Yeah. And um, it can never be like it, it, it was. But um, it's... It's something that people would like, no doubt. But um, but I don't think. Well, I know it's not going to happen. But it's uh, it's a nice thought. But I don't. You know, I think um, you you have to you have to believe that it can never be like it was. You know. Yes. This is all true. That's that's yeah. the passing of time. I think it was Sandy and De- De- it was Sandy Denny who so I think so sort of captured it that moment when she said, "Who knows where the time goes?" And I think that's probably it, really. Who knows where it goes? Yeah. Well, it gets it uh, when you get into your sixties. You know, uh, the time goes so quick. It just becomes a series of breakfasts. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, so true. That's life for you. Anyway, that is the last part of my interview with Colin Maldin from XTC and also the la- his latest kind of uh, musical creation with Terry Chambers titled TC and I. They have a new four-track EP titled Great Aspirations. This has been David Esau, The C86 Show. A big thank you for, well, listening and also for Colin for giving me the time. I'd like to, um, yes, I just remember Richard Penguin, huge fan of the band, so a big shout-out to Richard. Um, I hope you enjoyed that. Anyway, if you did, brilliant. If you didn't, sorry. Anyway, I'm going to leave you with one more track. This is Mayor of Simpleton. Have a great week. Never been near a university.